Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Show. This is Brad Listy. I am your host and I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thanks for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Luke Danny Blue, author of the debut story collection, Pretend It's My Body. You know, people who have written really, mostly just really generous things about the book, including some writer friends of mine who wrote blurbs and stuff like have not always but tended you know tended to for really you know reasons that are make sense and I think are valid for the collection like to focus on gender as a element like a central element of the book and it's not like it's not central but honestly like it's not super important to me like I, I it's important to me in the sense of and I think this is also why it gets so much attention. It's like, it's really like, like it kind of just sucks to live in a world where you never see representations either of you or like most of the people you hang out with or of your worldview or whatever. So it's like, it was an intentional decision I made at some point, like a lot of like underrepresented in the publishing industry writers. Okay, that was Luke Danny Blue. Their story collection, their debut story collection, is called Pretend It's My Body, available from the Feminist Press. This collection is informed by Luke's experiences between genders. It's a collection that blurs fantasy and reality very deftly. And it explores new meanings for our various dysphorias. I really enjoyed it and really enjoyed talking with Luke Danny Blue, who is just delightful. That conversation is coming up momentarily. I want to go through a few orders of business, if I may, before we get started. Just a reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. Not sure if you're aware of that. It is free. It is easy. It's once a week. And you can sign up for the email newsletter over at otherppl.com, the show's official website. You can also sign up for it at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. I also would like to ask you kindly to please rate and review 
this podcast wherever you happen to listen, be it Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is, please take a moment to rate it and review it. It's a couple of minutes of your time and it really helps the show because when you do that, it does something with the algorithm and new listeners can find the show and so on and so forth. So please rate and review the Other People podcast. Uh, Last but not least, my new novel published back in May. Uh, It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Some of you out there have been writing to me asking about signed copies. And what I've decided to do is I'm going to just offer up 10 signed copies to listeners. So if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase of the book in whatever form, paperback, ebook, or audiobook, I will mail you a personalized signed copy. And then you can give away the other one if you have it. And if for some reason funds are a problem, if you know money is tight, just let me know. I'll send you a copy on the house. Again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. This is a first come, first serve uh, opportunity. So if you want a signed copy, just email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. All right? So let's get on with the program. Today's guest is Luke Danny Blue. Their debut story collection, Pretend It's My Body, is available from the Feminist Press, and it is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For more on that, visit thenervousbreakdown.com. It's a monthly book club that I do, and I interview all the book club authors on this program. So very pleased to get to introduce Luke Danny Blue to you all. This is a great conversation, had a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Here they are. This is Luke Danny Blue, and their debut story collection, one more time, is called Pretend It's My Body. I'm in my apartment, which is in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is basically like you could fall into Massachusetts from here. And I just moved here, and it's sunny and like super sweaty out. I have the air conditioning on, but I totally can't feel it. So yeah, I guess welcome to the East Coast. I've been out West for the last, I don't know, like decade or something like that. So it's it's a change in moisture level around here. What prompted this? That's a really good question. I move a lot. So I think probably whatever I say won't make sense to anyone who has like a normal person's attachment to where they already are. But this time around, I do have like a pretty good excuse, which is just that I was in Canada with a person that I had been in a relationship with for 11 years, married to for the last part of that time. And for a number of different factors, but mostly because neither of us are Canadian, when our relationship ended, I basically just had to like... I mean, we're friends, so, but I had to figure out how to get myself out of the country. And then I was like, well, it's boring to go back to somewhere I've already been, and my friends are everywhere. So, and I'm not going back to Michigan, which is where I'm from. So I was like, "Eh, I kind of want to do some research about some stuff that happened in my family in Boston. And so I tried to go to Boston, and then I couldn't afford the rent. So I was like, my friend was moving out here. I mean, it's like all this stuff that other people would be like, that's like a thing that happened. That's not a reason to move to a place. And I'm like, I'm scared. There's reason as any. (laughs) 
I'm jealous of your like the ability to be that nimble <laughs> and to just move quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think one of my I was like I've been connecting with some like distant family, and I was like talking to a cousin, and I was she was like, "Why do you move so much?" And I was like, "I mean, like." You know, like, do you want to pathologize it or not? Because I can tell you my diagnoses. And also, I love novelty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but why do you? Because I feel like, you know, some people have like wanderlust or they're a little little bit restless. You know, I was raised by two of the most boring human beings on the planet who I also don't really have relationships with at this point. So one is, you know, I don't have the impetus that a lot of people have to like move back to be closer to family because that's not like you know people in my family don't do that we're just like let's get a little further away but then also you know as a child I was so horrified and bored by the fact that like we went to like the same two places every summer and it was like you know the same road trip and we took the same route and we stopped at the same rest area by Niagara Falls and ate the same terrible sandwiches that had been like sitting in sweaty like plastic bags and I just was like you know I think a, literally a week out from graduating from high school I moved to New York anyway it all sounds more exciting on paper in practice it's a lot like just like falling over picking yourself up cleaning up the scrape and then just doing it again <laughs> again for like no good reason just a glutton so- for punishment yeah, it's like I don't. I don't know if it's is it exciting. I'm not like an exciting person. I don't go out to things. Like I'm just like I like I could have not even noticed the pandemic was happening because I like prefer to like do everything virtually anyway. So I'm just like you know, uh, yeah. It's I I don't I don't know if it's exciting. It's sort of just boring in its own unique way. I don't know. Well, wait a minute. If you prefer to do things virtually and you're sort of a introvert. Oh, no, I'm not an introvert. I just I just don't like leaving my house. Okay. 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 So it's you're a different thing. It's a totally different category. So you're so you're an extroverted shut-in. Yes. Okay. That's an interesting category. I think it's, a lot of- It is. It is. It is. It's an interesting combination. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I love interacting with people online cuz uh yeah, I don't know. It's like, yeah. I I uh I can't, again, it's like, I could try to explain it, but it's actually less interesting if I try to explain it. It's just inconvenient. Well, I'm trying to zero in on a little bit of a, what feels like a dissonance, which is that you're an extroverted <laughs> shut-in and yet you move around a lot. Oh, yeah. So no I'm matter where you go, people. no matter what city you go to, you're dealing with people virtually and you're in oh, your yeah. house. I mean, I mean, like, this is, I sort of am always like, it's a little awkward to just lead with, like, the, like, pathology side of it but i'm like i mean like let's be real brad it's like mental illness you know like it's it's like adhd which like everyone else with adhd apparently i you know didn't know i had it for years and then i was like oh i like check every single box plus um so now i'm on medication but it like doesn't make it not you know define how i live my life and then like like trauma response so i have like less and less trauma response as I get older. So I, I stay places for longer, but like, uh, you know, every time I, I like, I would like to believe that I'm going to be here for years, but that's complicated for like health reasons, but also like, because I'm like, I've literally told myself that every time I moved for the last 20 years. So. 
Wow. Okay. Well, well, I'm glad I'm <laughs> catching you in. I'm I'm catching you in your Rhode Island face. You are. You are. Yeah. And I, you know, in reading your bio, you know, your bio that you have up online sort of alludes to all this. You say you have past lives in Michigan, New York City, Philly, Chicago. What is DS? DF is that Mexico City? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was there like the least amount of time, but it's the biggest like flex, so you have to include it, right? Yeah, and you and you call it DF. De Jefe. Yeah. Isn't it De Jefe? Yeah. Yeah. And then Olympia, Washington, Oakland, Cal, Western Canada. What does that mean, Western Canada? Is that BC? Uh, No. No. Alberta? (laughs) I lived in Lethbridge for five years. I don't even know what that is. Um, Where is that? Yeah. It is south of Calgary. Um, It's, I mean, there's lovely people there and I, um, miss my friends who I left behind but it is also like a hotbed of like Mormon dentists and like Hutterite like discount hunters um, Hutterites are like you, yeah no one knows what that is uh, Hutterites are it's like Mennonite or Amish it's just another one of those like low German super fundamentalist kind of agrarian like movements from the whenever it's from like the 17th century the 18th century no wonder you never left your house my god like what are you gonna do you go outside and everyone wants to clean your teeth medical care when you're like a transsexual and everyone is mormon oh my god (laughs) it's awful oh my god yeah i I mean that's a book in itself i feel like you know oh yeah no yeah it's like it's like a really like boring book (laughs) like it's really it's like a book that would be good edifying but no there is probably i mean i actually think i'm kind of i haven't told my agent this so now he's gonna hear but i am kind of like i think working on a memoir thing right now but also it's just like yeah like my life is like very eventful but i'm just like like i'm just always really like preoccupied with the most boring part of it I know I keep saying everything's really boring but it's also because I'm like if I told you what I was doing with my like I literally like my executive function is just offline right now because I'm between two stages of like treatment for cancer occurrence and I just like you know finding medical care in this country is as everyone knows it's a total nightmare and so I spent like the first part of the summer dealing with the diagnosis and the fact that I like urgently had to have surgery and I uh, was also doing an international move and like splitting up like my finances from my like partner of 11 years and trying to, you know, whatever, manage all that stuff. Oh. And so anyway, my bra- my brain is just it's like like it, it like it is like if, you know, the preschoolers are running the preschool right now. So they're just like, let's spend just, you know, 18 hours looking for the best price we can find on um double-sided tape <laughs> you know like i'm just like like i like i don't you know it's like i have had this like you know very kind of like on paper it looks like one of these exciting writer lives but i'm like but i wasn't really drunk for most almost any of it and you know like i had i slept with a bunch of people like in my like early 20s and i had like dysfunctional relationships but i like you know like none of again it's like i had dysfunctional relationships with people who like were like "Mm, let's not go out well you've had a lot on your plate and now you have to do book promotion yeah what is this i feel feel now you're like you know what you're dealing with uh cancer and health and a breakup and an international move 
Yeah. Now, now what you really need to lock in on is book marketing and self-promotion. I mean, it's kind of, it, yeah, it's, um, I'm having a really interesting existential crisis right now. I'm just like, and it, and they're not, yeah, it's, it's not as hard as that sounds on paper. Like I just, I like, you could probably check in with me like anytime. Well, not anytime, but like, you know, I have like three year stretches when like nothing interesting happens. And then I have like, you know, a lifetime's worth of crises and like, a year so I just like I'm like partly I'm like it's kind of normal for me but also I'm just like yeah why not let's yeah let's just like throw a thing that's like really good but also is like scary and like intense like just throw it into the mix at the time when I'm like but what does anything mean and just a book and also I am having the collective experience that we're all having of living in the United States in 2022 and like yeah on planet earth like i'm like like do i have a like you know i may i i might my cancer might still be curable so i'm not in the situation that most people are with recurrence but i'm like am i like am i potentially gonna die of cancer or is like planet earth dying of cancer like what am i having the feelings about (laughs) and like am i scared because i don't know how i'm gonna get to my medical appointment or because like i don't know some Republican in Arizona is like getting a lot of headway and like, you know, like eliminating trans healthcare from, you know, like, I just like, it's all so like, I just think like, I can't tell anything apart. So I'm like, am I having an existential crisis? Cause I'm publishing a book or is it because I like, I don't know, like I, don't know you know I mean I don't know I'm having a mortality crisis too so I'm like is it because I don't know if I should start another book because I'm like what if I'm you know I'm slow like what if I just like never finish it that would be so annoying right. so <laughs> I would imagine it would put things in perspective a little bit though wouldn't it wouldn't it make the book seem like it's something to celebrate and yeah. it's a good thing but it's not like yes. it's hard to it's hard to imagine yes. you considering it like <laughs> it's not the it's primary not, focus like, yeah no i keep like having like you know i mean this is this will tell you exactly what it's like is so i got the like, the box of books author copies came in the mail like i want to say like two days ago and i was like okay i have to like stop whatever ridiculous like internet hole i've fallen down into and like actually like absorb this for a second and so i like was like i'm gonna like open the box, I'm going to look at the books, and I'm going to hold them. And I did actually, like, I was really emotional, and I was really happy, and I was like, oh, this actually, this feels, like, so much more than I thought it was going to feel like, you know, because it's like you have, I mean, the arcs felt like a huge deal, and I was like, I mean, it's basically just going to look like the same thing, but it feels different somehow, you know? And then I was like taking an Instagram video of myself and I made myself late for like the hospital social worker phone call I was supposed to have and fast forward 24 hours I was like wait they sent me my book and then I was like where is it and I don't own hardly anything and I'm like you know my house is messy but it's not crazy messy and I for like 
24 hours. I, I was like, well, I looked everywhere. I think I just lost all of my author copies. And then I forgot again. And then, and you know, at this point, I do know where they are, but I have actually just completely misplaced the one copy I held. And I haven't looked at it since, not because I'm not excited about it, but because it's just like, yeah, I, anyway, so. You've got a lot going I, on. I'm probably talking circles, so. No, you've got a lot. I mean, uh, you, your life is in circles. You've got a lot going it, on, yeah, objectively. It's, it's bizarre and stupid and sometimes like, uh, yeah, there's like some kind of like heartbreaking stuff, but there's also some really beautiful stuff. But yeah, at the end of the day, I'm just like, I've lost it. any, any sense of proportion about anything. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's good. I don't know. It's bad. I like, I wish that uh, planet earth wasn't, you know, like in a survival. Well, the human species anyway, wasn't in a survival crisis. And that's about all I can like, manage to like hold on to concretely in my head however i will just say you know i know so many people who've had really painful experiences when their first book came out especially if it's something i mean i was working on this book for like 11 years and like not every month and there were a couple of years where i barely touched any of the stories but like pretty actively because i have issues but uh yeah, so it's like a huge thing and I was a little bit concerned about just like the fallout of looking forward to something for so long and then having it inevitably be different than whatever I wanted it to feel like or thought it might feel like or have it be that thing but not be fulfilling in the right way. And so I actually think like that, like there's a little bit of a silver lining here of like, I am so distracted that it really does make it just be like, yeah, this is a thing I really care about. And I'm really happy that it's like, A, not my responsibility anymore. And B, like just to, I mean, the, when I first got diagnosed, I just was like, the thought that I was having while I was like lying in like chemo agony and like surgery recovery agony was like, I can't believe I haven't fucking finished that stupid book. So like, I just like, I'm like, this is real. Like it's kind of gratifying that if my cancer had to come back, at least the book is actually like, when does that ever happen? You know, <laughs> you know, well, you got the book done. I feel like, yeah. listen, you know, you're really facing it because you're dealing with uh, cancer and you know, it's real to you, but I, have to say that in my own relationship to my writing, I think of it in those terms. It's like, what, you know, what would happen if I died and I didn't get this done? Yeah. Like it would bother me. I think a lot of writers feel that way. It's like, yeah. so like the work is so important to actualize, like to get it out of you and to make it a book and to know that you crossed the finish line with it and realized it in your time. But I would imagine with your situation, how can you get too worked up about a book? Yeah, it would have been it would have been really different had my cancer not come back because I think I was like about I was like right almost at the two year mark, which was like sort of like for my particular kind of like subtype whatever situation. It was like if it doesn't come back by two years, that like I would still be like concerned for five years, but it was really unlikely it was going to. And I had like a super lovely optimistic surgeon who you know she was like I mean numerically if I had to give it a number it's probably like mid 85 of like it being gone forever but like she was just like I'm just so sure you're gonna live for decades and decades so like like I was like starting to like 
expand again into like, sure, I'll play along with this idea that the future is a real place that we're all going together. I was waiting for the kind of okay of the like to your checkup, which I think is sort of how cancer time works for a lot of people is like, you're just sort of waiting for these different like tests before you like are like, okay, I'm going to like let my brain go into that conceptual place into the future. But yeah, when like, it's like when that happened, I just was like, well, you know, like I already was like, you know, just moving back from Canada to the U.S., which like I left the U.S. like in 20, what year was that, 2017, but I started the process of leaving after the election. And so it was just like, you know, I was already like what's happening to this world's kind of place. So yeah, anyway, now I'm just like, I, I keep having to remind myself that like, like I am having a particularly intense moment in what is an extended collective crisis but like that doesn't actually mean that I'm inside a dystopian narrative where everything is going to unfold in the next like two months like I literally for like a while I was just like I mean like like we can't survive this level of heat like we're all we're all we're gonna be dead in a few years. <laughs> well, listen, I was like, I was reading. No, I was reading. Like, uh, I was reading. I don't mean to interrupt, but I was no, reading. No, no, an, no. I was reading an article in a. Was it the New Yorker? Like talking about the heat in India and how like birds are falling out of the sky and like like landfills are bursting into flames yeah. and. Yeah, I think when I read a description of I, like, do you know about wet bulb no. temperature? Uh. Uh-uh. I feel like I, I try to have like I'm such a I'm such a downer kind of like anyone who I don't know very well I'm like it, w- at ten minutes into a conversation I'm like so the doom that is coming for all of us and then and then if someone has like kids I just am like I'm I'm just like such an ass I like I feel <laughs> terrible because I'm like you actually like I don't think you can be a parent and hold that thought in your head in a meaningful way but like yeah. Don't don't Google wet bulb temperature because it's about like the humidity and extreme heat, um, like the fact that it's not about average average annual temperatures. It's about one particular day being hotter than we as a species can survive. Wow! Like it's like the day that it just tips and we're all I mean, we all cook. My relationship to science is like probably extremely not scientific like it's very much goes into like hyper hyperbole pretty fast but like that was my impression i mean it was basically that they were like we have to look at the peaks like so if we're setting records every year by this much like what is that going to mean because yeah i mean um yeah it's like rhode island i mean it was it was hot in a way that i like i have like a you know 85 year olds ability to like regulate my own body temperature right now just because of like side effects from cancer treatment and so i find it really overwhelming like when it's like just a bit humid out but like um if my my uncle who's like i don't know like almost 80 was like visiting me and he's like i'm gonna go for a walk and i was like don't go out there you'll die and he's like actually i live in florida this feels just normal to yeah me. right um and uh and i was like oh that's right i have like an actual like medical condition this isn't like i'm not i'm not that the average um but like uh yeah so but i mean just feeling that as so many people do you know it's like i'm like oh like i i just was like oh if i didn't have air conditioning right now i probably would be in the hospital i mean yeah i that's like i feel like when when it comes to climate 
and the ways in which we're supposed to try to do our part, like not watering my lawn. Fine. I drive, I dr- I don't drive very much. Uh, yeah. I have like a hybrid car. I sh- I'm going to get an electric car at some point. I'm going to put solar panels on my, you know, I have, I'll do anything, but like no air conditioning is tough for me. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Yep. I know. And I've been running it a lot. And I just, every time I do, I'm like, you're the reason the world is ending. But of course, you know, that's actually not like, it's not about individual choice. It's about nations and corporations and, you know, like massive collective action by like hugely powerful entities. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I want to ask you about another aspect of your of your bio that I found okay. fascinating. Uh, and normally I don't spend this much time, but your bio yeah. has particular... Yeah, I, I mean, I've had a weird, at least weird... I mean, I've had kind of a weird life, but I've also had like particularly like a weird for the literary world life. Okay. Uh, You refer to yourself as a time traveling Victorian (laughs) invalid with an MFA in fiction from San Francisco State. So time traveling Victorian invalid, if you could just expand on that for me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it may just be like an inside joke with myself. Like I, um, uh, so I'm just like a very sickly person and I always have been and I grew up and in ways that aren't like connected to each other in at least not in a like logical medical sense like for the most part like the cancer is a complete fluke you know it's like I'm way too young for the kind like I'm like too young for the kind of cancer I have by like or something like that it's not even a super common kind of cancer it's almost always uh like genetic and um yeah and like no one in my family i'm actually doing all this genealogical research right now that's the boring thing i'm obsessed with and uh no one in my family has like (laughs) ever died of cancer as it might might like except for smoking smokers you know like my one of my grandmothers died of lung cancer, but she was like a chain smoker for like 50 years and she probably made it longer than the average one would have. I, you know, there's no breast cancer in my family. There's no colon cancer, you know? So that was like fluky. But anyway, like when I was like a kid, I just, I missed school all the time because I had a headache or had a stomachache or I like somehow managed to twist my ankle. And I watched a ton of um, like VHS recorded, like, like, you know, kind of like 80s Hallmark Hall of Fame or like, you know, that kind of movie. And 
the movie that I probably watched the most often was the like 80s adaptation of The Secret Garden, which I don't know if you're familiar with that book. No. It's like, um, so it's Francis Hodgson Burnett. It's a fascinating read. I, I just listened to it like as an audio book for the first time. It was like my first time reading it or whatever since like, I don't know, since like elementary school. And I was like, wow, this is like, it's so um, morally instructive in such a, a, like, I mean, it's awful, but it's also just like, it's very colonial, but it's also just very, it's quite well-written, but it's like, like the things that you take for granted when you're exposed to literature as a child are always, I think, very interesting to re-encounter, but especially with something that old. Anyway, I used to watch the movie of it. It's about like Victorian children who are obsessed with gardening because Francis Hodgson Burnett did had no realistic sense of what children are actually like apparently but one of them is this kid Colin who's confined to a wheelchair he's just a very kind of stereotypical like invalid he's like the rich child who is actually all in his head and he just needs to you know I don't know knuckle down and put his fingers in the soil and it's you know in a kind of like 19th century way like 19th century British like you know or actually, I guess it was 20th century because he, the kids like grew up to be like go off to war, but like to World War One. Um, so you know they need to become he needs to become manly. Anyway, I always had like a very shameful identification with him as a child, like that everyone was going to find out I was just like Colin. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, and and then just like going through medical care, I'm just like you know people are always like like the chemo nurses last time were like wow you get every side effect i've never seen it. someone actually have this one and i was it's like that's not something you're supposed to say just a lottery winner you know <laughs> so anyway i feel very like that kind of like the like pallid like you know the, the the pallid boy in his like you know wheelchair who only ever sees his father as a shadow in the doorway yeah time traveling i mean it's not actually possible to be a present tense victorian invalid all right fair enough i yeah. and uh, you are also an astrologer i am yeah i'm also an astrologer again another thing that sounds like super out there but actually like the day-to-day it's like a lot like life coaching or like kind of light counseling i mean like you know the astrology is essential to it but it's mostly just talking to people about their lives and i think it, it's not that you know, it, it kind of like, it's a lot about like, astrology provides like a kind of way to tell a story about our experience. And so it's, a, it's actually like, for me, it's very connected to like writing fiction and teaching fiction writing, because it's, it's like, um, kind of like, helping nudge people into a space of being able to like, take ownership over their own experience, which is like the opposite of how most people think of astrology. But I don't, I mean, most people don't actually know what real astrologers do, and I also don't do astrology in a similar way to a lot of astrologers. So. I don't know anything about it other than like you give people your birthday and they do your stories, yeah. like they do yeah, your charts. Yeah, it's like um, I guess it's like uh, the I'm just gonna like draw a corollary. I'm not saying it is, like I I it. There are some astrologers who will insist it's science. It's scientifically backed, but like I don't know that those astrologers are actually familiar with how scientific 
conclusions are drawn. Like it's not like they're just, I mean, I think I am confused all the time by how much it works. And then I'm also like, you know, I was, my parents are both psychotherapists. So I, I like also just, you know, I'm kind of like a stereotypical, well, not a New York neurotic Jew, but I'm a stereotypical Midwestern neurotic Jew. So I'm just like, always like, but why do I think that like, it's probably, you know, so I'm always like, it's maybe it's confirmation bias. And then I'm like, I mean, it is really weird that I like, you know, knew the week that this complete stranger lost her job, but like, I don't know, um, doesn't really matter anyway. So um, yeah, it you can do it like, it's like, kind of like medicine, like you can say I'm a doctor, but you might like specialize in making insoles for shoes, or you might be doing heart surgery. So like, there isn't just like one astrology, like, like, I couldn't tell you what astrology is other than that it's a, like, very old, more or less global art, although it is the kind of astrology you would be most likely to be familiar with is basically from, like, ancient Greece and medieval Europe. Don't quote me on anything because I'm, like, a very ignorant astrologer, like, who can bear it. Like, I went to an astrology conference once and it was really like fun and cool and I learned a lot of stuff and I was also like I am not like I can only be life invested in one community of super nerds with a lot of weird grudges and that's I've already decided (laughs) that's writers so like and that's really makes more sense for me anyway but like um but I definitely was like wow like I have the spottiest self-education like because people you know there are like astrologers who like read Greek you know like it's a very serious like intellectual like kind of pursuit for most people who do it and I'm much more interested in it as a like um tool for counseling and like particularly like just like a tool for self-validation like it was really so wait so wait so wait if i were if i were coming to you and i said tell me yeah i mean well how would it work how would tell me what your sun sign is and i'll and i'll tell you exactly what i would tell someone you don't know well what's your birthday august 1st okay so you're a leo yeah uh okay uh, you're going to hate everything I say probably because Leo's al- always do. I'm like the anti-Leo. I don't mean to be. It's just how I am. No, Leo's uh, are, no, I will. I know a little bit about my sign. I fucking, yeah. I hate myself. The Leo's yeah. are pompous, <laughs> self-invest. Yeah, like, okay. So yeah, so this is, this is like an ordinary thing. So usually Leo, every so often I get like a Leo who's just like, I love being a Leo, but usually those people don't actually come to me because I'm like, for lots of reasons, not just my sun sign, but I am a Capricorn and we're like the grant, the like annoyed grandpa of the <laughs> Zodiac chart. So I'm just like, I get like, like, I guess you could do that cause it's fun, but what's the point, you know, like, and so Leo is, so your son, the thing that everyone knows about is your son. Like that's what Western astrology is built around. And part of the reason we know about it is cause it's super predictable. There's very little variation from year to year and where the sun is going to be located, but there are, and I might, I might not know the number exactly. This is like so embarrassing. I've been doing this work for 10 years. Uh, I'm like, I think there's nine other planets in the modern astrology chart. I don't know. I'm just like, I never say that on a recording. So I'm like, or I do, but like a private recording for clients. So I'm like, if there's like astrologers who listen to your show, I'm like probably like making them like cringe in seven different ways. But um, but yeah. And the sun is just one part of it. The sun represents our sense of purpose, motivation, and identity. And this is where 
uh, things get really different from what most people know about astrology. Um, signs aren't that important. Uh, so I agree. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff going on in the astrology chart. Signs are a little bit like saying like, uh, I don't know, you know, people who are like, I mean, I guess I, I just did this like with like, you know, Ashkenazi identity or whatever, but like people who are like, I'm Italian. That's why I like gesture and I talk big and you're like, I'm well, Italian. Like, I'm Italian, but yeah. I do I gesture? Yeah. I'm not gesturing. Yeah. I mean, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit like a sign. Like, it's like, sure, you can identify with it and you can sort of play it up and, you know, you can make an argument that like, yes, it's like a cultural behavior, but at the end of the day, it's like either you're making big gestures or you aren't. And it's probably not like shaping the direction of your life in a meaningful sense, or at least not identifiably. But like, there are really fascinating things in the chart and just like, I'm there's like some really cut and dry stuff I'm super interested in, but the, my main like passion in astrology is really just like trauma work and like um, kind of like looking at the ways that like childhood stuff shows up in adulthood yeah. and I'm just like helping people like, like find a way of looking at their experience where it's not, a curse because a lot of people do you know people who don't know what they're coming in for and are like i have no idea what to expect from this or who might like get a gift certificate or something and have no idea what i do because there's some like i write i have some writing about astrology online but uh some people are like so i've looked at my chart on everyone uses costar now it's like sort of a predatory astrology app that like almost all millennials and like older Gen Zers are on and um, you know, and they're like, I have such and such in my house of relationships. And so I feel like I'm cursed and whatever. And so like, you know, I mean, it's pretty easy um, to address that because that's just not how astrology works. But also a lot of times, you know, someone might feel cursed because of the fact that their relationships have this particular pattern. But when you actually talk about it with them, you're like, but like, do you mind that? Or is it just that you're comparing yourself? I mean, in that sense, it's not that different from therapy, right? Like, cause it's like, do you mind the drama? Is it like so bad that it's not worth getting the passion? Because those two things are connected and that's part of who you are. And it's not like one is good or one is bad, but like you could also, you know, you could work really, really hard to have a less dramatic relationship life and that's one choice that some people make you could go back and forth between different ways of relating to it or you could also just be like you know yeah that part sucks but it's completely worth getting to have like way better sex than anyone else my age and you know <laughs> like like going on these amazing vacations and you know like a lot I mean yeah and I think therapy is a lot like that too it's like a lot of times and you know, Buddhism, like, I'm just like, there's a lot of things that get to the same idea of, like, sure, we have, like, agency, and some things are beyond our control in ways that are existential, and other things that are about systems of power that we can collectively and individually engage with changing, ideally, but, like, also, like, some of it is just a matter of perspective, and just being, like, you know, so, like, like, it's, like, yeah, if I were going through the stuff that I am going through right now, 10 years ago, I, 
I don't know how I would have survived it, but I'm not obsessed with some idea that my life is supposed to be a different way right now. So I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard, <laughs> but it's also like, I feel also like really lucky in a lot of ways. And also it doesn't really matter how I feel about it. Cause at the end of the day, I just have to like, you know, get up tomorrow morning and get a po- chemo port placed in my chest. And it, I could be, I could have any emotion about it and I would still do that. Yeah. Well, no, it's, you know, talking to you and listening to all this, it's like, makes me think to myself, life really is crazy. Life is fucking crazy. It's crazy for yeah. all of us. Yeah. And maybe really like it, it, you know, but it, we take, maybe we take turns or some people it's crazier for them than it is for others. You know, we don't go all get equal doses of crazy. Uh, but then there's also like, you're describing this, this odd variability to lived experience where even in like the quote unquote worst situations where you've got to go in for chemo or something, you, you might wake up and have like a lovely moment watching the sunrise or like, you know, have like a great exchange with your like friend or a pet or something, just like something that's like so, so wonderful. And yet it's juxtaposed against what's awful. It's just, it's all of that. It's a lot to process. It is. It is. I mean, like, let me tell you, if you think about it too much, you can literally do nothing else. (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, you know, like probably most people on planet earth's life are just what like American culture considers to be like a disaster or crisis. Like, you know, quite frequently, just because I feel like there's a lot of expectations we have about our lives that are probably not really realistic for anyone, but they're especially not compatible with, like, resource scarcity um, or, like, natural disaster, you know, which I think is part of why the United States is having the particular kind of meltdown it is, but... Well, I want to read something to you because you're making me think about it. Let me see. I might have to turn my phone back on. But it's about this idea of how we conceive of ourselves and how we conceive of life. Uh, And I read something this morning about, and I'm going to start reading now, the profoundly unfortunate emphasis in like the realms of like therapy and in economics, the profoundly unfortunate emphasis on the individual and the costly and narcissistic pursuit of the perfect self, the perfect life. This is dangerous and has eroded what is truly needed, which is the realization of a distributed self, a self coterminous with all beings and things, an ecological self. I feel what like is what is that from? Uh, a tweet. i was like oh that's like but it's by joan halifax who's like a buddhist thinker or whatever that i follow and i was like oh that's that articulated something that i sort of feel but didn't have the words for you know the way that we are sort of enculturated to think of ourselves as like this project to perfect and the way that you know especially like social media like we're curating this version of ourselves for others where it's like this is my great life on display and Meanwhile, like the people on the other end are like bitter and (laughs) like quietly resenting you and feeling terrible about themselves for not having, you know, it's all of that. And it's like, you know what, we need to rethink this. Like this isn't working well for people. It's making people like unhappy and unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, totally. Obviously I could talk about this for a long time. I do. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think the tension between like 
the individual experience and the emotional experience and the inner experience is real and it matters. And if we de-emphasize it, we get into really dark territory socially very quickly, um, like very violent and oppressive and or very repressed, you know, maybe superficially peaceful, but very repressed. And the collective experience and the fact that we are not nearly as separate as like, at least the society I grew up in would have us believe, like, is also really real. Like, we're not separate from everything else going on on the planet. So it's like the fact that everyone's been freaking out the last couple of years is like, well, sure, there's COVID's been happening and that's been having really profound, dramatic impacts on many, if not on everyone's life. But also, you know, some of like my kind of feeling about it is I'm like, I just think most of us in order to, like if you're successful and functional in the world, you're doing a lot of by necessity tuning out of the things about life that are hard or mysterious or complicated or painful. And when all that noise goes away, it's like we're suddenly in it. And it turns out we've been in a really serious emergency for a while in terms of climate stuff and, you know, also like sexual violence, racial violence, colonization, et cetera. It's like, those are emergencies that have been going on for a very long time. So, you know, basically, yeah, I have no point. I'm, I'm like, you're, you're just like calling down a well to someone who's like in the midst of a very like calm existential crisis. Well, but I feel like in a, like, I don't know, for me, that's like a perspective I like to hear, to hear from somebody who is in confrontation with the existential in a direct way, as opposed to in like a theoretical way or in an imagined way, even though we all are sort of up against sure, it, sure. just like you were saying with the climate sure. crisis. It's one of these, it's one of these crises that like, I think part of the problem is that we have to act like uh, very boldly to stave off something that is many years hence, you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. unless it's like yeah. staring somebody in the face, it's hard to get them to take it seriously because they've got all these other things that they can distract themselves with or that they care about. And, you know, to bring this around to your wonderful book. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, I did. I wrote a book. That's yeah, right. you did. You wrote a lovely collection and, you know, it does have something to do with what we're talking about. You know, it, it calls into question this idea of a self and like where the boundaries of selfhood exist and do they exist? And this has uh, a relationship with like gender identity. It has a relationship with uh, fantasy and reality. You know, there are probably other, you know, things that you could point to that you're working with in the collection, but I'm really fascinated with the question of what a self is because I think it's at the heart of the, the human experience and might be at the heart of a lot of human dysfunction. And I think that the answer, the answers that I'm arriving at around this and you can agree or disagree, they really upend so much about contemporary human culture. And I think to come into contact with this notion that the, the lines of selfhood are blurrier than we might have previously thought can freak people out. People don't want to necessarily hear that there is no inherent self <laughs> and that like yeah. the body and all these thoughts that you have in your head, they're not you. Yeah. 
Like yeah. it's a lot for people to sort of, including me, it's a lot to like wrap my head around and to then live accordingly. But right. I'm fairly persuaded, you know, that I, the body, my body and my thoughts are not me. Uh, it's like a misapprehension to believe that that's like me and mine. And I think your story collection, I'm thinking especially of, uh, what's it called? Suzuki and Limbo. I love that story because it speaks in a, in a very artful way to this idea. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I just am so, I mean, it's still really weird for me. Like I'm like, who gave you that book? Like, I'm just so weirded out, you know, because I've been publishing these stories like in random places. I mean, great little magazines, but I know it's like a real physical object. It's still, it's just, and that is actually the cover art is like also, I mean, just to make this even weirder for me, like as a kind of inner experience is like, like I, that's like art that I made when I was probably like 20 and just like, having probably my last really serious existential crisis in a journal and I literally was just like what about like I have some like random stuff lying around like this is just a random page in my journal I mean I was just lucky enough that I was sitting packing a bunch of boxes when I showed that to my editor and my agent and so I just happened to have that one there because it's definitely the best art that I had in those journals like and I have a lot of journals so it's kind of random luck but also it's like I'm like why do you have a drawing that I made when I was like basically a child <laughs> like, you know it's like anyway so yeah so but I really appreciate what you're speaking to in it because you know people who have written really mostly just really generous things about the book including some writer friends of mine who wrote blurbs and stuff like have not always, but tended, you know, tended to for really, you know, reasons that are make sense. And I think are valid for the collection, like to focus on gender as a element, like a central element of the book. And it's not like it's not central, but honestly, like it's not super important to me. Like I, I, it's important to me in the sense of, and I think this is also why it gets so much attention. It's like, it's really like, like it kind of just sucks to live in a world where you never see representations either of you or like most of the people you hang out with or of your worldview or whatever. So it's like, it was an intentional decision I made at some point, like a lot of like underrepresented in the publishing industry writers, like to like, like where I was like, why am I only like, I've never written a, a trans character. Like I, and I, like you know 75 percent of the people i hang out with are trans like that's weird um so i like actually did decide to do that but once i had decided to do it it just was like well of course that's where my actually like those are a lot of the stories that i want to tell but it's mostly for me a way of getting at because i don't think i settle like it sounds like you're so like in that story right like suzuki has a very strong opinion about selfhood being a complete illusion and i don't know if it's like i feel like i should say like it's a story about uh a like young adult who is like in the, it's in the near future and she's like decided that she's gonna upload herself to basically this like binary code existence and is like 
kind of like going through but at the same time like to me the irony of that story and the the pleasure of writing it is that as much as she's disavowing all of the stuff about being like I'm not a person she's also like a pretty intensely self-involved like a you know um, pretty intensely self-involved young person not self-involved because she's young but she is young and she's self-involved and very arrogant and also just like taking so much kind of masochistic pleasure in the drama of the coming out which I you know certainly wasn't like I don't like particularly identify at all with that character but I certainly like recognize the the moments of that in my own experience like of just being like I'm gonna say something really shocking and I might be rejected for you know it's like there's a there, you know like there's a sort of excitement about being inside of a kind of soap opera plot line or whatever but also it's like I don't thinks like I don't think she's wrong but I also don't think she's right and I think she's missing the fact that all of her actions and the entire like what happens in the story is colliding with her complete ideological purity of conviction that there that there is no selfhood and that what she's doing is about enlightenment and she's already kind of beyond what everyone else is doing and she's making everything fucking about her. And she, I mean, and I can like actively think about this until this moment because I haven't like described the plot of the story out loud, but like by the end of it, it's like, she's actually like, like ruined everyone's outing to this, like kind of like Chuck E. Cheese, like what's it called? It's called peppers, Colonel peppers. Colonel Peppers, yeah, it's like yeah. there's a there's a Detroit based. Um, now I can't remember. It's like a Sergeant Pepper's themed Chuck E. Cheese that like I don't I don't know. When I was a kid, I was only ever allowed to do the off brand as if it was going to be less expensive. <laughs> like it was like about saving money, except that it wasn't, and it was totally arbitrary. But it was like if you ever wanted like the name brand thing, you got the like. So like, I think at some point. Like I lost interest pretty quick, but I wanted a Barbie at some point. My mom was like a second wave feminist and she was like, I will not get you. So she got me like a knockoff, like it was called like Mrs. Hart family. It was a bar, like it was literally like probably made at the same factory, like as the same exact, cause she was like, it's a anti, you know, whatever. It's a misogynist, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is conversations I was having in kindergarten, which <laughs> is why I'm like this. Um, but like, uh, yeah, but you know, I mean, I didn't know, that, but like, you know, like a few years later, even like, even like as a second grader, I was like, but really? Like, you know, this is the exact same doll. She's like light brown hair and like she's married. So she, I think she was like, it was probably the, honestly, it was probably the like fundamentalist Christian answer to Barbie because um, you couldn't get her like slutty clothes or whatever and no convertibles. Um, and she had children you know, that she was raising and probably homeschooling and feeding like organic <laughs> vegetables or whatever. But like, yeah, like I, uh, I, I have no idea what I was talking about. No, I think I was just a complete joke tangent of just saying, yeah, I always got the knockoff for no reason. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the writing of the collection. You said it took you a decade or thereabouts. And you were when were you diagnosed with cancer for the first time 
Uh, recent, I mean, you know, my pandemic experience has basically been cancer, like uh, cancer and then aftermath. Like I basically started having symptoms and like most people who are on the extreme young end of the like bell curve for cancer, as well as frankly, like most trans people who are going for any kind of medical care, but particularly anything that's like potentially reproductive organ involved, like just no one listened to me. So I was like, I have this weird stomach ache and I am always... Like I said, I'm like a total, like I'm just, I'm just like sort of uh, plague ridden. I'm just, yeah, I'm always having something. So I also am like, I don't know, maybe it's like, you know, it's not unusual for me to have an undiagnosable thing that is causing me like daily discomfort that I'm just like, well, I give up trying to get someone to listen to me about it. So I, anyway, I got a bunch of tests and they just didn't look at my actual like reproductive organs and so they didn't notice that there was like a giant softball sized tumor there and then I had a I've since learned that this is more painful than childbirth I had a uh, my family doctor told me that afterwards and I was like okay cool I'm gonna save that <laughs> like every time someone's complaining about childbirth I'm gonna be like yeah well, I've you know whatever just kidding uh, I'm glad I was so glad I didn't have a baby at the end of it <laughs> like that that is the only way this could be worse I had an ovarian torsion um, which is where if you don't know what that is it's like where your fallopian tube I mean I like wasn't even so like not bothered by the fact that I had ovaries but I just didn't consistently remember that they were there because they were never relevant or interesting to me. So I now know a lot about those parts of my body now that I don't have them anymore. But uh, basically the fallopian tube like twists. It usually happens because you have a cyst. Anyway, so they thought sounds, it was a cyst. Sounds painful. Basically, I was, I, was, I was sick for a while, but I was diagnosed in... Um, yeah, it's, yeah I, I got to go to the emergency room three times and they were like... The first two times they were like, well, we know it's not, it might be a torsion, but we know it hasn't twisted all the way because you'd be screaming. And then when it happened, I was like, oh, they're right. <laughs> it's like, uh, you actually, like, you, like this level of acute pain, you actually cannot, like, it's very strange because I was just like, you know, I mean, I was in more pain than I'd ever experienced in my life. But I also, you know, that part of like the sort of like out of body thing, like that part of me is like so pedantic. And so it was just like, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, could I stop screaming? I could try. And then I was like, yeah, but I don't want to try because I want them to do the surgery right now. So I was like, I guess I just won't know, you know. So anyway, potentially I could have stopped screaming. I don't know. But if you scream fuck at the top of your lungs in a emergency room that is full of extremely religious members of like fundamentalist Christian sects. They will give you fun. They will. That's all it's good to know. It's good to and, know. And as painful, as painful as that was, I have to say fentanyl addiction is very easy to understand. I was like, wow, that was, that's, I'd almost say that was worth it, <laughs> you know, but I was like, they gave me so much of it. I was like, you know, like basically like on the verge of losing consciousness so uh, yeah anyway uh okay. i was diagnosed what year was this okay <laughs> so no it's okay because yeah. i watch I, out I, I, like i i am always like this and i am like this to like the hundredth degree right now so i cannot answer a question at all no i love it i love it and i i just the question that i'm leading to by asking this is how much of this book do you feel like is influenced 
by the diagnosis? Because I imagine you would write differently. You know, you'd have yeah. a much different perspective if you're dealing with yeah. cancer or a serious illness than if you're not. Like you were talking about earlier, like your relationship with the future and the way that you conceptualize things. Like, can you just talk a little bit about the diagnosis yeah. and how it impacted the fiction? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard to know, right? Like, I mean, on in a very concrete level, like I wrote Suzuki and I wrote, so the like, you know, uploading the body one and I wrote another story that's like, my favorite story in the collection and also for sure the most ex- existential is the like in my opinion anyway is like the uh it's my mother's bottomless hole and it's about a middle-aged like like kind of lesbian kind of like trans man who refuses to come out uh but it's also it's i want to say is that the one that has it has some pandemic in it right yes there's yeah there's pandemic in both of those right yeah yeah so those were both like after I, before I sold the collection, but after I got an agent, which happened like basically right after chemo, I was, when I started sending it out and I was very fortunate in having, finding my agent like in the first few queries. Who is your agent? My agent is uh, Adam Shear, who's a totally lovely person and a really excellent, excellent agent. I feel super fortunate. And when, uh, when you went out with it, like you did not have a, like you obviously didn't have an agent, didn't have a home. You finished the collection and then went out and found your publisher. Like how long did it take? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that long, probably because I had been working on the collection so long. But we did do so. I mean, because the thing is, like a lot of those stories changed quite a bit, like between edits that I did pre-submission with Adam and then after acquisition like I did some more edits on a few of the stories not dramatic ones but smaller ones so I'd say about half the stories got pretty significantly revised like you know whole kind of like I there's like major major changes in a couple of them and then more subtle ones like in I don't know in a lot of them so there's certainly ways that it came together that I'm sure are very different. But honestly, I don't think I could have finished the collect. Like I couldn't finish the collection before, maybe because I didn't have enough distance from what it was wrestling with. And then I really could see it really clearly by the time I was like through treatment. So I think that in that sense, it's like, it's like, the kind of cancer consciousness didn't so much drive the collection as it did allow me to disentangle myself from it enough to know what I wanted other people to experience with it. I understand. I think what you're saying, which is like you got out of your own way. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like, you know, I, 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 I didn't start writing. I mean, I wrote, fiction sort of like unconsciously like that I didn't even remember having written like like as a child but like once I was thinking about myself as a writer you know like in a sort of serious way like starting when I was in high school like I didn't write fiction at all until I was in my late 20s and so I also think I just have a really different relationship with like I was writing other stuff I mean not not um consistent like I didn't write a ton but like I was writing poetry badly and like 
um, personal essays, which are still something that I enjoy. I just don't do that much of, but I really came to fiction as a tool for uh, like dealing, I guess, with like a kind of existential problem of early child, like early childhood trauma related, like just being kind of too relativistic about my own experience, like being like, well, sure, I guess I could be sad, but I mean, what is sadness? You know, like, like, so it sort of gave me a way of, it's like the, you know, nothing in it, basically, there's like a couple of very small things that are like actually directly borrowed from my own experience. And most of the characters are not really people I super identify with, but like, I sort of used those stories as a place to feel, I mean, it's very like a weird thing that like probably just wouldn't, well, I don't know, maybe it would do this for other people, but like, like I just use them as a place to make my inner experience feel concrete so that I could start doing like, I don't know, start like, believing that what I experience is real like which is like you know when you I mean and this is true of a lot of people who experience like particularly early life trauma it's like your sense of reality doesn't like neurologically it doesn't get developed properly and so it like it just takes a really long time to like and it's not like I didn't know what reality was it's just things didn't feel real just because I experienced them and so those stories were such vehicles for my own process that it's like I couldn't I couldn't do what needed to happen to them in order for them to be like a kind of controlled or curated experience for a reader until I was no longer like using them for that if that makes sense and you talk about early childhood trauma. You're under no obligation to share, but I'm. You, you said it happened really early, like. Oh, I mean, I just I grew up just in a really. Um, I'm trying to like you know, be I don't know respectful of people who aren't like in the room or whatever, and like sure. they're right. To pr- I just like I, like my parents were not able to parent. In, at least not in the way that I needed, but certainly, I mean, I, I kind of don't think in the way that uh, small people need. So I just didn't get like, the, you know, like some of the basic ingredients that are, we assume are typical at that age. So Got yeah, it. yeah. But it's not, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to say what that was, you know, like until I was basically on the other side of it. So there's a lot of like magic in these stories, if that's a way of putting it. Yeah. You know, it's like, like you could describe it as speculative fiction, magical realism, science fiction even. And what it got me wondering, and, it, and it's like this lovely blend of like the real and the mundane and the everyday. And then there's like a hole in the backyard that's bottomless. <laughs> you know, like I love when stories do that kind of thing and can pull it off. It feels like a magic trick to me. And it makes me wonder about your reading habits and like what you grew up reading or what you read that might inform your style and the choices that you made creatively in the collection. I've definitely had like some pretty distinct phases as a reader. And since I went like started my MFA 
I want to say like 2015, maybe like at that point, I, I, once I started seriously studying the craft of creative writing, which I wasn't aware that that was a thing until then, like, I, I don't think I had the tools to look at really realistic fiction or like kind of conventionally literary fiction in a way that um, made it interesting to me. Like I couldn't quite see what was happening. Um, so like if something was really subtle, I just kind of be like, oh, it's boring. And I still tend to really enjoy things that are more of a blend of like, like more of the kind of literary hybrid. But I also was like, I didn't read for years. I didn't start college until I was 25. And so- You, and dropped, went, you dropped out twice, right? That's what Yeah, I did. Like. Dropped out twice. Yeah. Okay. Which was like, partly I just didn't want to be there. Like I was already doing other things in high school. And it also was just like, you know, I sort of instinctively knew when I was- that old I just was like this is preparing me for a life I'm not gonna live you know and that's what I've been doing you know that's what my family was trying to do too and so it was just like it felt very useless but also like untreated ADHD in a very serious way like I didn't I got really good grades in high school because I had a good memory for facts and because I could write well but I was not a good student you know so I had no idea what I was doing when I like you know was like tried to go to NYU I was like I like like what's a seminar like you know yeah I just I literally had like I I yeah I didn't even know what question to ask because I was just like I have no idea what everyone else is taking for granted so and I didn't have like guidance from older people who could be like this is what's going on and you know whatever so um but I still didn't want to be there anyway point being yeah, so I started, so I just, I hadn't studied literature seriously. I didn't, I like tested out of all the English classes in high school. So I like also didn't really, I mean, not that the English classes were that good. It's like I hated them because they were just like very, you know, boring. But yeah, where were anyway, you, where were you like, living? You were in Michigan, in Detroit? I grew up in Ann Arbor. Oh, in Ann Arbor. Okay. Yeah. I actually grew up, uh, Charles Baxter, who is like very famous among literary types. I grew up playing in his basement because his, kid and my brother were in the same class at school and they were friends and then when I found out like that he was like you know like the author of my you know most influential like craft book in in grad school I was like well it's really weird because I just like you know been like I think his writing's okay it's kind of boring you know because I was a kid um but I didn't know he was like superstar in the literary world but yeah I so this collection though comes out of when I did go back to school I decided I was going to have this really concrete goal, which is I'd been working as a landscaper and a gardener. And I most like I not too long before that I'd been living in Chicago. And so I was working with a lot of Mexicans, like, uh, you know, real recent, like, I'd say immigrants, except they were guys who were like going back and forth with the intention to go back long term to Mexico mostly. And I couldn't talk to them. And I just hated that. And so I was like, well, I don't know why I'm going to school. But if I just have this concrete goal of learning Spanish, then I will be able to get through it. And I went to a school that it was it's like a total hippie school. So it, they gave me credit for everything. They let me go to Mexico for a year. What school? At, at Evergreen, the Evergreen State College. So oh, in Olympia. Matt Groening, you know, I, Courtney uh, Love was there. I think she did not do well. 
um, and dropped out. But yeah. Wait, she was there when you were there? No. Oh God, no, no, no. no. But there's she does like there's a song. Which album is it on? Maybe it's on Celebrity Skin. No, it might be earlier. It's I went to school in Olympia where everyone's the same. Um, so yeah, I used to like have that song in my head did all the you, time. Did you learn? Did you learn Spanish? I did, I did, but not at not at Evergreen. I did because they gave me uh, college credit to go to um, uh, like basically just like hang out and take some painting classes in Mexico City, and I took some Spanish classes. But I also like had the most ridiculous learning how to write fiction, which was that I like took on a like I made a commitment to a professor who I was who's like introduced me reintroduced me to literature so very roundabout way of saying like what real what this collection really grew out of was that i was reading a ton of kind of like canonical latin american short stories of like the 1920s through like the 1990s or so particularly like like Juan Rulfo, which is where the like, you know, the quote at the beginning comes from and uh, Julio Cortazar and like Cristina Perirossi. Anyway, my Spanish is now terrible. However, um, I did write a story collection. Well, uh, so I but that makes it, that, that, that puts it into context. That. that puts it yeah. into context for me. Totally. That makes it make sense that you would have those influences. Yes. Uh, because I mean, I'm not, I'm no expert on uh, Latin American fiction but I know that it has like these kinds of elements in it oftentimes and it's more mythical generally. Yeah. And it's very ironic. I mean, you know, there's the kind of, I mean, I'm not, I am not an expert either. I'm like a person who like, you know, took 16 credits of this, like at a, like, you're an you expert know, as far as I'm concerned, undergrad program, but I had an excellent teacher. So that was helpful. But, um, so the, the, most of the stuff that I studied was work that was specifically created under dictatorship or like kind of similar conditions and that were a lot about using these sort of extreme so like there's the you know 100 years of solitude kind of stereotypical idea of what magical realism is which you know Marquez like really rejected that and both him and Cortaza right really beautifully about why they reject that construct. But I think what, when we're, you know, when those of us who are not like from those parts of the world, like when we are introduced to it in an American context, it is like, you know, kind of surrounded by the mental architecture or like window dressing of like, like summer or spring break in Acapulco, you know, it's like, you know, giant like tropical drink out of a coconut shell. Like it's very exotic and it's sort of like the, the playfulness and the escapism of it is emphasized. But like the work that I'm familiar with primarily that I read when I was an undergrad is quite ironic. It's quite, there's a sort of you know, Cortazar, I would say, is on the more entertaining end. But, like, there's a real bite in a lot of that work. Like, whew, that collection of stories by Juan Rufo, it's like, it's, the Spanish is really beautiful, but it's, I think there's, like, you can get, like, a decent translation, but I don't feel like it's a book that, that I would have come across um, if I hadn't been studying Spanish. 
Um, but that book is like, oh, it is dark. Um, and it's, I don't know the history well enough. So this is like, as well as I remember it, it's like, it was written, I want to say like in the wake of the Mexican revolution. And it was a lot, I think Rulfo may have been the army. I don't totally remember, but basically it was as the ideals of the movement were dying and it was kind of like, they got, I'm probably totally mangling this history, but like, I think it's like they got like, you know, the first like, like distinctly, I think like actually like indigenous um, and rather than Mestizo like president, but like, and he did some things that were helpful, but also it was like, he was basically a dictator anyway, complicated, but it's so about disillusionment. And that quote comes from the story that is just, oh, I just love it. But it's it's like, it's getting at this kind of biting. Let me read it. Let me read dissonance. it. Yeah, 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 please do. I'll yeah. read it. This is the quote from the Juan Rolfo uh, story that you're talking about. We have begun to walk again. We had stopped to watch it rain. It did not rain. Now we are walking again. And it occurs to me that we have walked a greater distance than we have gone. That occurs to me. <laughs> Had it rained, perhaps other things would have occurred to me. Uh, I love how you read it. Yeah, that I just, it, it just, I mean, it makes me laugh, but like, like I feel like uh, having come from a household in the childhood where I experienced a lot of gaslighting such that the external reality and my internal experience were so out of sync that they didn't even make sense in the same space. And like, there's something about the kind of collective experience of like dictatorship that is very relatable. I mean, you know, authoritarian households and dictatorships. Um, and so there's a kind of way that that body, I mean, it's not even a body of work. It's like international writers who were reading each other, but, you know, separated in time, separated in culture. Like, it's like they were all trying to find a way to talk about like what we're experiencing right now as our country sinks further and further into like right wing totalitarianism. Um, that these things happen that you're like, everything should stop when this happens. And it's not even on the news that half the country is watching. And in a year, they'll be like, it's not happening. You know, or the, like, I think the dissonance that those of us who are still concerned about COVID are experiencing of being like, like, it made sense. Like, no, I mean, like, who wants to go back into lockdown? And who wants to, like, have to, like, have a piece of fabric over your face all the time and smell your own disgusting breath and, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like, but... It's also confusing. It's like traumatic, but in a way where it's almost like your brain is like being torn in half when something is so true from one perspective and not even it's not even real from another. And if you're going to participate in consensual reality, and so this is really what the collection is about for me, if you're going to participate in consensual reality and consensual reality does not include your inner experience, um, then 
the coping mechanisms of that are very complicated and it involves some pretty impossible trade-offs that are going to fuck you up. You know, I mean, that's like, if I were like, so, and I think not that that's exactly the same as living under a dictatorship or living in a society that's like, you know, gone to like an ideological extreme that is completely based in fantasy, but like it is similar and I think I think anyone who grew up in a an abusive household, but also like a traumatized household, which are often the same thing, like, but I think that's also one of the puzzles that I just am interested in as a person and also tormented by is like, I mean, and this is where the gender piece comes into it. To me, it's fascinating that when I was growing up, you were like, seriously mentally ill if you were trans like just on a medical level like that was the sort of conventional american agreement um and then right around like i started transitioning like whatever that you know kind of it's a construct but like you know what when i entered that construct when i started calling myself trans and you know asking to be called by certain pronouns it wasn't a normal thing i was like you know i had one trans friend like who is also in the Ann Arbor public schools at the same time and like you know so like, you were a kid oh I was a kid I, this was like 2000 oh. I was in high school I was wow. like towards the end of high school so anyway I was coming out as trans like in a situation where it that reality was shifting in that like I was inside of the shift of like there had been no way for me to even imagine like the idea that I might be trans for like, it's not, it's like I didn't. Yeah. It's like, I, there was no room for that to be in my head except in this very like primordial, like terror and confusion way. Like until I was like, I don't know, like 16 because then it was like suddenly there were trans people who existed and they did things in public and I, you know, could have a crush on one of them, you know, like it's like they're, they're like, but like I didn't, I knew one trans guy, I think maybe I met another trans guy, I, but yeah, it was a weird moment and then it was also this moment where there was like, you know, I was like at camp trans like multiple years in a row, which was like a really, anyone who's taken like a kind of like history of feminism like women's studies gender studies type class has read stuff about camp trans because it was mostly just a bunch of like like i don't know Wait, what is, drunken, what is, drunk annoying white anarchists having sex in the mud outside of the Michigan uh, Michigan Women's Music Festival. Okay, but wait, so, wait, 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 wait. I, yeah, I got to stop you because I don't, all, I don't know what I don't know what Camp Trans is. Yes, yes. So Camp Trans is a protest. It was a protest technically. It was a lot of really young trans kids, pretty much like trans mask, almost exclusively. I mean, there were. There's a 1990s era, which was like trans women inside of this music festival that was a second wave, like spelling women with a Y. There's a very wealthy white lesbian in rural northern Michigan, which is not a place where uh, it was particularly safe or comfortable to be gay in public. And women came from like all kinds of different like 
lesbians came from all over the place every single year to go to this giant folk festival, basically, where it was like clothing optional. And there were like, you know, like, there's like a camp where people were like doing like BDSM, you know, and like, you know, a, a, a huge number of my friends had their first sexual experiences there because like, you know, wasn't all like there were family family oriented like parts of it but like of course if you're 16 years old like you know you're you're gonna go do whatever the fuck um if your parents let you go there it's like cool but it's huge and it's like all ages of lesbians i went i I think it like clarified for me that i was trans like i was i I was there with a bunch of friends for having a great time and i was like i feel weird (laughs) and like can everyone put their clothes on? I mean, partly I'm just like, I'm like a prude and I don't like big crowds listen, and I'm listen. not that interested in music, you know, uh, yeah. anyway. Yeah, no, so it's like, public nudity, public like, nudity is overrated. Yeah. I would say yeah. <laughs> it's, I kind of like, I'm, I'm like, you know, body positive in theory, but in practice, I kind of think bodies are disgusting. So I'm with uh, you. I'm with you like on hairs that. everywhere, yeah. you know, but then also not having hair. I now know that is also gross. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. All, it's all problematic. Yeah. I mean, listen, exactly. body, po- exactly. body positive, but like also like, let's be real. Like, let's be exactly. real about what exactly. we're dealing with. So basically camp trans was this counter event, <laughs> except that, People who love Michigan Women's Music Festival, like people went there and loved it. You know, I was like a weird, you know, 17 year old, didn't know I was trans yet, queer kid who was like, where are all the boys? And, but like Camp Trans was like, I don't know that it was inherently fun for most people who were there, except for the fact that you're with a bunch of your friends. It was like a protest because this is all like inside baseball stuff, basically like, for a while, there was like kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy for trans women at the Michigan Mu- Women's Music Festival. There were always trans women there, often like every, you know, everyone who they were interacting with, like knew they were trans, like it wasn't like a secret. But then there was like a crackdown where the owner who is like the original turf, like a trans exclusionary ra- radical feminist, like she was just like, you know, very, this event has had a huge global influence on the experience of trans people in ways that I could enumerate for you in the present if you if you like had eight hours and you wanted to listen to me go there. But um, it's uh, it, it's very weird that it had this big of an influence for me. It was just like I I grew up four hours away and my friends were going up there and I going up where where was it? This is Northern Michigan. I don't tr- near. I want to say like near. Like maybe an hour from Grand Rapids. I honestly, I don't even know where it was. Um, I you could look it up because it's like a you know it was like a famous thing. But like, but it wasn't far. And I was like, I had kind of like just you know, I was sort of like increasingly housing optional. I'll say like towards the end of high school, like. I wasn't like kicked out, but I also just stopped going home. And then I would like, you know, so I was like, no, I was like, again, that sort of like bifurcated experience of reality. On the one hand, I was having a really fucking cool, like Pippi long stocking, you know, real life experience of like, I just like told my mother I wasn't going to listen to her anymore. And that was it. Like, it wasn't like there was no consequence. And so I just did whatever the fuck I wanted, you know, which 
included a lot of really exciting things. And also I was like in an extremely traumatic experience that I'm like, you know, kind of still working through in therapy that was so overwhelming that I had a like, you know, ginormous like nervous breakdown like a year later, you know, so what, it's like, what, what, anyway, what was, what was the experience? The experience, oh, of basically like, you know, being functionally homeless, I guess. Oh, that was okay. the experience. That was the experience. Yeah. Okay, okay. It was, but it was weird because it was like, felt like a choice in retrospect. I'm like, not exactly a choice, but like kind of a self-preservation instinct. I, you know, I appeared to be having a lot of freedom, but I actually was like, you know, just like, you know, in a, in an ongoing crisis with like no sense that I, like, I didn't even know it was a crisis. Anyway, point being, that's how I ended up at the Michigan Women's Music Festival because my friends were in a car like the summer before my senior year and they were like, we're going to Michigan, which is what the Michigan Women's Music Festival was called. Um, it was just called sure. Michigan? Just called Michigan, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's like, I mean, it is like, you could find almost any lesbian over, I'd say like 45 and they'll have, if not a firsthand, like a thirdhand, like Michigan story, or the least, like if you say the word Michigan, that is more meaningful to them as a music festival than as a state. Anyway, they basically started banning trans women and then there were various phases, but the phase that I was a part of was a lot of, it was almost no trans women at all and kind of a misogynistic group of young, like, butches and trans guys and our friends and gender queers and whatever who were ostensibly protesting but really we were just like kind of sitting in this like pub you know we'd rented like a giant huge field and we're all having you rented a field oh it's like a camp it's like you know midwestern camping like you can rent out a giant public i don't know it's i don't i didn't i wasn't involved in the renting of it i just showed up Anyway, it's weird, like, punk, like, punk trans arcana, basically. But basically, it was, like, some people were doing actual organizing. I was not. And some people were having a really great time because they were, like, partying. And I was kind of partying but not having a very great time. So um, I was just sort of a, a bystander for, like, for the thing. But I was there. You were there. You I were was there. Like you should, like you should get the T-shirt. I went to Michigan. That's what they call. <laughs> I am the T-shirt. <laughs> like, you are the T-shirt. Yeah. Well, it's been a delight to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we barely mentioned the book, and I have gone on so many tangents. So that's I just, what this show is about, though. I love this. Yeah. This was a this was a, a wonderful conversation. I got to know you, uh, and I think, you know, uh, the book. I'm excited about for a lot of reasons. Like it's just a lovely collection, but I think I'm like moved by the fact that what this book does is it centers characters who don't maybe appear in fiction or in stories in the way that they should or at the, to the degree that they should. And so at the level of representation, it's awesome to see and kudos to you for that. Thank you. And I hope that you get this memoir written. Thank you. I hope that everything goes well with your uh, health situation. I will be keeping you in my thoughts. Stay positive and uh, keep writing. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe Twitter's dying and I don't know if I'm going to stay on it long term. But if you do want to keep up with really dark humor about chemotherapy, that is that's my 
mo on there so well i will list your i'll read your handle right after okay. the music plays and i do the closing or whatever but we'll okay. make sure we we send people to your social be well uh congratulations congratulations enjoy this publication process thank as, you as much thank as you, you yeah and good luck with the back to school i hope it is a smooth transition into middle school yeah we'll see we'll see <laughs> All right, everybody, there we have it. That is Luke, Danny, Blue, and their debut story collection, One More Time, is called Pretend It's My Body. It's available now from The Feminist Press. You can find Luke on the internet at LukeDannyBlue.com. You can follow them on Twitter at LukeDannyBlue. They are also on Instagram. One more time, the story collection is called Pretend It's My Body, the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, available now from the Feminist Press. If you would like to sign up for the TNB Book Club, just visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Once again, it's pretty simple. You sign up, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this program, so it makes for a nice, holistic, literary experience. If you would like to support this show, I hope you will, because it's all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. The entire archive is out there, almost 800 episodes and counting. I make it available for free. I depend on the support of listeners. So if you would like to chip in, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash otherpplpod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it easy. Uh, and if you want to go higher, you can. $3 a month, 5 10 20 whatever you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you can get stuff. You can get some gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, a sticker, a coffee mug, and so on and so forth. I will even wish you a happy birthday. Just go to patreon.com slash other pot. By the way, when I wish you a happy birthday, it's a voice memo. I record a voice memo and then I will email it to you. I don't know if that sweetens the pot or completely forecloses on any possibility of you supporting the show but I hope you'll consider it. And uh, the Other People podcast, I should also mention, has its own app. Are you aware of that? This program has an app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. If you want the app, go get it wherever you get your apps. The Other People show also has a YouTube channel. So if you're a YouTube person and you want to listen on YouTube, uh, just go search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy and then subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's free. If you have something to say, if you would like to share your thoughts, you can email me. The show's email address is letters at otherppl.com. And uh, maybe I'll read your letter on the air. Who knows? Next week on the program, I believe that my guest will be Jerry Stahl, returning to the program after many years. Great to talk with Jerry. He's got a new one out on Akashic, and that will drop next Wednesday. So stay tuned for Jerry Stahl on the Other People Show. All right? Good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you soon.